Our first reading is Psalm 101, which can be found on page 427 of your Black Bibles. I will sing of your love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praise. I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? I will walk in my house with a blameless heart. I will set before my eyes no vile thing. The deeds of faithless men I hate. They will not cling to me. Men of perverse hearts shall be far from me. I will have nothing to do with evil. Whoever slanders his neighbour in secret, him I will put to silence. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, him I will not endure. My eyes will be on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He whose, whose walk is blameless will minister to me. No one who practices deceit will dwell in my house. No one who speaks falsely will stand in my presence. Every morning I will put to silence all the wicked in the land. I will cut off every evildoer from the city of the Lord. The next reading is on page 845. It's Titus 3, verses 9 to 15. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychius to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way, and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good, in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let me pray. Father, you, you, you say in your word that your word is powerful and effective and sharper than a double-edged sword. Father, we're a church that wants to be refined. And we want, Lord, for your word to take deep root in our hearts. And so I pray, Father, for an outpouring of your spirit tonight that your spirit might be at work as your word is preached. You know us intimately. You know our, our needs. You know what we need to learn and things that we need to be corrected on. So please do a good and mighty work in each one of us tonight. For Jesus' sake. Amen. This is uh, the last sermon in the book of Titus. I wonder if I said to you, what have you learned from Titus, what you say? You might be thinking back to uh, chapter 1 and uh, the qualifications of an elder, you know, gripped by grace, growing in godliness, loving the truth. You might have been struck by uh, the older men and the older women and the younger men and the younger women, the way that we relate as a church family, making the gospel attractive. You might have been really struck by 
grace in, in chapter 2, that the same grace that saved you is the same grace that transforms you and grows you each day. Uh, you might have been struck by doing good. I mean, we as a church, if, if we love Jesus, we should be devoted to doing what is good. I've loved preaching Titus. And I've loved preaching it because it's about the church. It's about you and it's about me. Not individually, but the way that we exist together as God's church and as God's people. And the way that in God's wisdom, he's made the church to, to make the gospel attractive. Look at the way that the Bible describes God's church. God's church is, is the bride of Christ. Uh, Revelation 19, Ephesians chapter 5. The people of God gathered together are the bride of Christ, beautifully dressed for a husband who is Christ. We're supposed to be pure and spotless and, and blameless, ready to meet our groom. Uh, the church is described in the Bible as the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Christ is our head and we are the body. Different people, different gifts, different functions, different well, we're working together for one purpose, which is to bring glory to our head. The church is described as precious in Acts chapter 20. The people who are bought with the precious blood of Jesus. God describes his church as the, the pillar and foundation of truth in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Built on truth, growing in truth, absolute truth. Ephesians chapter 4. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. We're a united people because of Christ. And in Ephesians chapter 3. That in God's manifold wisdom, he's chosen to display his grace and his glory to the world through, through the church. It's just such a beautiful description of, of church. We're the bride, we're the body, we're precious, we're the, the truth. We are making the gospel attractive by the way that we live and the way that we love each other and the way that we grow in godliness. That is God's church. That's the picture that God has left with us in his scriptures of his church. So how are we doing? How's 6.30 church? How's church by the bridge doing? Of being the bride and being the body and being precious and being truthful and as displaying God's grace and God's glory and being united. How is God's worldwide church doing at these things? So here's some headlines from newspapers in Sydney in the last month. Local church hates gays. Church put their faith in advertising Jesus. God takes a back seat at weddings. Anglican church slashes staff. Bible believers schism threat to Anglicans. Vatican seeks to lure dissatisfied Anglicans. I could go on. There's hundreds of them. Because the way that the world sees God's church is a church that's divided and uh, factious and fighting and we're incompetent with money and we're bigoted and we're homophobic. And Yes, I know there's the press and the media and they're never going to like God's church. But actually, the church that the world sees is not this precious, beautiful, united body that's making the gospel attractive. And even in this church, there's fighting and there's slander and there's factions and the way that we relate it's not precious and beautiful at all. So what's happened? What's happened to God's picture of his precious church when the reality is so different? 
tonight in Titus chapter 3, I want to give you five marks of a healthy, beautiful, grace-filled church that I pray would make this church a precious, displaying God's grace and glory, bride, body, pillar and foundation of the truth. Number one is this. Don't get distracted. Or more literally, the danger of a distracted pastor. Because Paul is writing to a pastor, his name's Titus. He's been left on Crete. What is the job of a pastor? What's the job of a church leader? The Bible tells us. 2 Timothy chapter 4, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season to correct and rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. That's how God grows his church, with God's word being preached, with the gospel going out, with people being discipled and built up in their faith, and the gospel going out to a lost world. Now what destroys the church? Just getting distracted. Look what he says to this pastor in verse 9. He says, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Now these people are obviously Jewish and they're discussing things like uh, what food can you eat and can you wash your hands or not wash your hands and should you be circumcised and not circumcised and whether you can wear cotton and wool. That's not the kind of things that distract us today. We've got churches full of of pastors who are being distracted by foolish issues like church structures and church politics and whether we have individual cups for communion or the big cup for communion, whether you you dunk a baby or whether you sprinkle a baby. and uh, You've got pastors who are spending hours and hours reading books on whether this word means, means envy or whether it means jealousy, as though they're two vastly different things. And we get distracted. And Paul says to this pastor, Titus, that when you get distracted by, look at the word, foolish controversies. He's not saying you don't discuss the word. He's not saying that you don't debate uh, God's truth. But when those controversies are, are foolish, when they are literally pointless, they don't grow God's church, they don't win disciples, then you're being unprofitable and useless, verse 9. It really saddens me when I meet pastors and the hours that they could spend visiting people, reading the Bible one-to-one, discipling and just doing good work is spent debating and discussing with other Christians these minor issues. And it really saddens me when I think this, Sydney in particular, is getting obsessed or addicted to, to blogging. And you spend hours on websites discussing a minor policy in the diocese or one particular word or one particular way of doing church planting. And it's all Christians blogging with each other. No one else is reading it. And those hours could be spent doing good and winning disciples of Christ. And it saddens me when you have whole Bible colleges full of students and it's important to study, it's important to learn. But when you're spending hours quibbling over minor issues and you're not actually doing any people work or any ministry. That is sad. He says to this pastor, don't get distracted because when you have these foolish controversies and your squabbles and fighting, it's just like 
It's like rain hitting on a, a tin roof. It makes a lot of noise and it achieves absolutely nothing. I've seen churches, churches where they've lost their, sh- they've lost their cutting edge, they've lost their gospel focus, they've lost the word going out because their pastors are distracted by foolish controversies and speculations about meaningless things. I want you to pray for me and for all pastors that we would not get distracted. Because a distracted pastor means a distracted church. Number two, beware of division. Or more specifically, beware of divisive people. Do you remember God's instruction to his church? Ephesians 4 verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. We are united because of Christ, because of God's grace that's been shown in Christ. We are united people, different backgrounds, different personalities, but we are one in Christ. One Lord, one church, one hope, one faith, one Spirit. There's this oneness and this unity that is so beautiful because of the gospel. And of course, you know, we're going to disagree with each other. That's okay. We're not a cult. You know, it's okay to disagree. It's not sort of come here, sit, listen. If you don't agree, out the door. You know? Christians will disagree on things. But when we disagree, I hope that you will sit with somebody and you will open the Bible with them and you will discuss it and you'll pray with them and you'll listen to them and you'll be patient with them. And it should sadden you and it should grieve you that... You have to agree to disagree. But that's okay because you're still brothers and sisters in Christ. You've still got the same Savior and the same Lord. And you can still sit in the same pews and worship the same God. But friends, have you ever met the people who they are just gunning for a fight? And they love winning the arguments and they love conquering people. And the people who just come into a church and no matter what the issue is, they've got an opinion on it and a strong opinion and they're always right. And they gather people around them to discuss this particular issue that they're so, they're so strong about. And they email uh, website links and uh, they gather together and they're causing unrest and they're causing division and they're causing disunity and they're not making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Now that's the kind of people that Paul is talking about here in Titus. He says, verse 10, warn a divisive person. It's okay to disagree, but warn a divisive person. This is kind of three strikes and you're out. Warn him once, warn him a second time, and after that have nothing to do with him. That word warn in verse 10, I think we read it as a a threatening term, a stern, harsh word. That's not the way it's used. It's exactly the same word that appears in Ephesians chapter 6, where, where Paul says to the fathers, fathers, don't exasperate your kids, but bring them up in the instruction and teaching of the Lord. It's the same word, instruction and teaching of the Lord, the admonition of the Lord. So imagine that, that you're a father and you've got a teenage son. And this teenage son of yours has got involved with the wrong crowd uh, he's drinking and he's doing drugs. He's lying, he's stealing, he's just rude. He's your son. He's on the wrong path. What do you do with him? 
going all guns blazing. <laughs> no, you admonish him, which means that you sit with him and you, you love him. <laughs> and so you gently correct him and you point out the, the danger he's in and the consequences of his actions. But you do that in love because you want to see him on the right track and you want to see him living the right life. That's what the word warn means. With a divisive person, you meet with them and you open the scriptures with them and you're patient with them. But you do correct them and you might need to rebuke them. But you do that in love because you want to see them back on the right track. You know, most people who are in church who are divisive don't mean to be. <laughs> they just come from different church backgrounds with different styles and different ways of doing things. And when you sit with them and they say, oh, right, okay, I didn't know that. And it's all good. And just occasionally you meet somebody and happen to me and you correct them and they go, I don't care. It's a free church. I can do what I want. And I say, but you're causing division and disunity. I don't care. Now, that's a divisive person. And with those people, he says, warn them once. Warn them a second time. And then what? Have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that he is warped. That means he can't see correctly. He's sinful. He doesn't live with the unity of Christ as his goal. It's all about himself. And he's self-condemned. You're not condemning him. He's doing that all by himself. We must warn people. And if they're causing division and disunity, the loving thing to do is to have nothing to do with them. That could mean you excommunicate them. They're not welcome in church. They're not welcome in the Lord's table. They're not welcome uh, in leadership. It could mean that they're just not welcome in your house. Don't hang out with them because they're causing division. And you're sitting there going, that, is, that sounds really harsh. <laughs> and that sounds really unloving. It's the most loving thing you can do for the good of the church, for the good of the individual, and for the glory of Christ. It's the most loving thing you can do. Because you've got to protect the flock. You've got to protect the church from, from division and disunity. And it's the most loving thing to do to put this person out of the fellowship. Got, it's the most loving thing for the individual because the Bible says throughout the Bible, when you warn and when you correct, the purpose is not to win the argument. It's actually so that they can wake up and say, oh, yes, I've been divisive and come back to Christ. You, you don't warn to remove them, but to restore them. And most of all, it's the most loving thing for the sake of the truth and for the sake of the glory of Christ. It's tough. Uh, but we're not here to be tolerant. We're here to preach truth. And if you've got a person who is focused on causing unrest and disunity and just want to win arguments, you've got to warn these people. Because the, the, the media loves to pick, on a, uh, pick up on a divided church and a, a church is full of schisms. Beware of division. Let's turn to the positive. What makes God's church unique and precious? What's a mark of a healthy church? Go look at verses 12 to 15. When I read these on Mondays, I thought, oh, we could just skip over that at the end of the, end of the letter. If we did that, 
we'd, we'd miss out on some of the riches here. And we do scripture a disservice. I've loved these verses. Number three. A mark of a healthy church is that we, we value other people. And we need other people. Stop for a moment and I'm going to ask you how, do you, how do you imagine the Apostle Paul? Now, this great church planter, gifted, talented, totally competent, zealous, handled most things in life. You know, a bit of a one-man band. You know, I, I imagine Paul... I'm off to Spain next week to plant a church and I'm going to Syria to preach the gospel and I'm going to, to go to Europe to that church and that church. And you imagine this guy who's just this, he doesn't need anybody. That's not the Paul of the Bible. Paul loved people. Paul valued people. Paul thrived on people and he needed people. Look what he says in verse 12. As soon as I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me, Titus. Please, Titus, there's an urgency here. I'm urging you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I've decided to winter there. Now, he's not telling us his holiday plans. He's saying, Titus, please come to, to Nicopolis with me because I want to spend some time with you. And I don't imagine he's saying, hey, we can sit back and we can sip lattes and we can watch DVDs for a few weeks. He's going... Titus, it would be so precious to me if we could just spend a few hours and days together. And Hey, Titus, we could, we could pray together. And Titus, we could read God's word, the scriptures together, and we could talk about God's grace and God's kindness, and we can talk about ministry, we could talk about life, we could just talk about what it, what it means just to live with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. I need that, Titus. Will you come to me quickly? Same down in verse 15. He says, everyone with me, sends greetings. And when you read the letters, he's always with people. He's with Silas, he's with Timothy, he's with Barnabas, he's with Apollos, he's with Phoebe, he's with Priscilla and Aquila. He's just a real man with real needs who recognizes that, that living the Christian life and serving Jesus is hard work and other people are so refreshing. The church in Crete needed people. You don't set up a church and watch people grow and then just walk away and hope someone might emerge. And so in verse 12, he says, I'm going to send Artemis to you, or Tychicus. He's going to send them to Crete because the church needs them. We don't know anything about Artemis. He's never mentioned in the Bible apart from here. Uh, Tychicus, he's described in Colossians 4. Beautiful description. Colossians 4, verse 7. Tychicus is a, a dear brother, a, faith, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant. Dear brother, faithful minister and fellow servant, now he's the kind of guy that I would like to have in my church. A dear brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant. He's sending Zenos the lawyer and Apollos. Zenos, Apollos, Artemis, Tychicus, they're just names to us. But for the church in Crete, they were real people with real faith, who were loved by God, and they lived together, and they coexisted together, and they refreshed each other. Paul needed people. The church in Crete needed people. The great Augustine. There's a great chapter in, in, in Augustine's biography. If you, don't, if you don't read biographies, please read biographies. They're so refreshing. 
Augustine's biography has a chapter called Friends. Here's a great quote. Augustine was never alone. He had Christian friendship from the time of his conversion right up to the last breath of his life. He always had a small network of dear gospel friends. Brothers and sisters, we need people. We need each other. Walking the Christian life, living life in this world as a Christian is hard work. And church, God's church, is not about buildings, it's not about staff, it's not about program, it's about people. It's about men and women and boys and girls who are just trying to serve Jesus Christ each day. And there are people in the world, Christians in the world, who have nobody. And they wake up each day with no other Christian around, just the scriptures. But just look around at each other here. There are over 100 people here. God has blessed us in Kirby with a church family full of people. And we need each other. And I keep meeting Christians from this church who have, who have chosen. They've chosen to do the Christian life by themselves. So they come in late, deliberately. So they have to talk to people outside. They do the dash at the end and never stay for dinner or supper. If we let them, they sit at the end of the pew so no one can sit next to them. <laughs> and they join a connect group, but they rarely go. And if they do go, they never share anything about their life because it's all a bit personal for me. And that is tragic. I keep having coffee with people and I say to them, who are your Christian friends? Who supports you? Who encourages you? Who helps you walk with Jesus? And they say, oh, no one really. I've got lots of friends, but they're not Christians. That is really sad. I need people. God has blessed me with some amazing Christian friends. And when I spend time with these Christian friends, these people... I love Jesus more. And when I spend time with these people, I want to read my Bible more. When I spend time with these people, I want to pray more. And when I spend time with these people, it just helps me just to live the Christian life. And when I distance myself from them, when I choose to remove myself from them, it's much harder to keep on following Jesus. We need each other. have got to learn to value people. Please don't think you can be a, a lone ranger Christian. Please don't do the flirting with church. Six months at this church, six months at this church, six months at this church, never really building any real relationships. So do you work hard here at cultivating and growing friendships? Yeah, it's painful. Yeah, people let you down, and you let them down as well. And do you cultivate friendships, not just for your sake, but for their sake as well? Do you invest time with people? Praying with them, encouraging them, rebuking them, spurring them on. We need each other. Paul said that, that phrase, do your best to come to me, Titus. And I just wonder whether 
God might be saying that to people here tonight. There may be a Christian friend of yours who is struggling, who is lonely, who is doing it tough, and they're almost crying out to you, do your best to come to me, please. I need you. Sit with me. Read with me. Pray with me. Who are you thinking of? The Christian friend you haven't seen for a while, who's not at church. Maybe you've got a a phone call to make tonight or a visit to make just to go and sit with somebody. Walking with Jesus is tough. Look around you. You've been blessed with the church. Value each other. Number four. Be devoted to doing good. If you've missed it, that is the, the big theme of this letter. 2 verse 14. A people is very own eager to do what is good. 3 verse 1. Be ready to do whatever is good. 3 verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying. I want you to stress these things so that those who are trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. And in our passage tonight, 3 verse 14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. And you spot that word learn in verse 14? Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. Why don't you learn? Why does Paul say learn to devote yourself? Because it doesn't come naturally. As I was preparing to preach on this last week and as I reflected on this week, you know, naturally I'm selfish. I will do good if it fits into my diary and my timetable. I will do good if it doesn't inconvenience me too much. I will do good if I like the person or the task I've been asked to do. But to learn to devote yourself to doing what is good means that you've got a whole new mindset because life's not about you anymore. God has saved you by his grace and God has reached out to you and taken hold of you and changed your life completely. You're not your own anymore. And to learn to devote yourself to doing what is good means that you go through life. Remember my illustration from last week about changing lanes? You're on the freeway, you're trying to cross four lanes of traffic and you're there in your car and you're looking for the gap, looking for the gap. Is it there? Yes, and you've grabbed it. And you go through life as a changed person with a new mindset saying, I could do good there, I could do good there, I can do good there, I could do good there. Uh, yeah, I could, I could uh, watch that DVD tonight or I could cook a meal for somebody. Uh, I could have an early night or I could sit and read the Bible with somebody. I could do Sunday brunch or Sunday coffee with my friends, or I could come and help a kids' church. I could spend that tax return on a new bike for me, or I could give it away. A new family just moved into our church. You need a car? I could do good there. Missionary family come back on further. I could do good there. Come and live with me for a while. Look, you look everywhere. Playtime needs helpers. I could help there. Tuesday morning crash. I could help there. I could go to Greenway. I could do James Milson. I could read the Bible with somebody. I could join a welcoming team. I could just clean the building. I could do maintenance on the building. I could do prison fellowship outside of church or hospital visiting or some gardening or sponsor a child in Africa or give to earthquake relief. I just want to do good. That's the mark of somebody who is in love with Jesus. Because they love Jesus, they just spot every opportunity to do do good. 
and you're going, yep, I heard that last week. I know that, I've ticked the box, and I've thought of the good thing I can do this week. Okay, Church by the Bridge. Let me introduce you to two people. And they need your help tonight. Two visitors from overseas. One's called Zenos and one's called Apollos. And they're with us and they need someone to stay tonight. And they need clothes and they need food and they need a computer and internet access. And a car will be very nice. Who's going to help Zenos tonight? Who's going to help Apollos? Oh, don't look to me. Don't look to the church relief fund. It's not the church relief fund's responsibility. Who's going to help them? Who's got a spare room in the house? Put your hand up. They could, they could give them a bed for the night. Who's going to give them clothes? Who's got a wardrobe full of clothes that you could just give them to Zenos tonight? Who's got, who's got some food on the table that you could give to this, this couple tonight? Who's got a car that you could lend them this week? See, that's where the rubber hits the road, isn't it? Verse 13. That when two people walk into your church and they've been sent and they're Christian brothers and sisters, we as a church, are we going to do everything we can to help them on their way and to make sure they have everything that they need? Because it's easy to do good when it's in your diary. But doing good means it's spontaneous. And it's joyful. And it's not done begrudgingly. And yes, it's costly. It's really costly. A guy called Julius described the church. Julius was a pagan guy. Didn't, didn't love Jesus. And he's talking to some pagan priests. And he says this. He says, the Christian church is amazing. No one begs. No one goes hungry. No one is homeless. And they just care for each other. And people are flocking to them. We love Jesus, we'll be a church that are known for doing good. We have so much. God has blessed us richly. It's about a new mindset. Because I love Jesus, how can I do good? But I couldn't end this sermon series and I can't end the letter, Paul doesn't, without talking about grace. And the fifth mark of this healthy church is being gripped by God's grace. Because that's how the letter started, chapter 1, verse 4. Grace, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And that's how the letter ends. Grace be with you all. That's how Paul starts and ends all his letters. Grace be with you. Grace be with you all. May the grace of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Grace, grace, grace. It's, it's God's undeserved favor. It's God's unmerited love. And what he's saying, my friends, is that what a church needs more than anything else, more than, more than programs, more than staff, more than buildings, more than doing good, is <laughs> just a people who are so gripped by God's grace. When did God's grace enter the world? Yeah, God was gracious at creation. He's always been gracious. There's a moment in history where God graciously humbled himself and stepped into our mucky world and got himself dirty and lived on earth and climbed a lonely hill called Calvary and there he was crucified. 
and God's grace was poured out. And Jesus cried out the words, it's finished. It is finished. And that's when grace appeared, but then grace appeared in your life. I pray that grace has appeared in your life. What was the moment in your life when grace appeared to you and God opened your eyes and God says, you're my precious child because Jesus died for you. And friends, if grace has appeared in your life, you've got to be gripped by that. Every day, you need more of God's grace. Every day, you need to understand God's grace more and more. Every day, God needs to be gracious and merciful to you. And what we need, friends, is a church here that are so dependent and gripped on God's grace. Because without God's grace, we'd just be proud, arrogant do-gooders. Without God's grace, there are people here who just leave in despair every week because they feel a failure. And without God's grace, we'll just go to a club. But God's vision for his church is a people united in God's grace, serving the Lord Jesus Christ, and making the gospel of grace attractive. It's really sad to see Newspaper articles that paint the church in such a negative light. It's even sadder to walk into a church and see the reality of a factious, divided, slandering church. And my prayer for church by the bridge is that we might be a people not distracted by things but just preaching the word. Not divided, but working hard at unity. Loving each other because we need each other. Doing good. Grabbing every opportunity. But most importantly, just have our eyes lifted upwards onto our Savior. Every day, thank you. Thank you for your grace, Lord. Amazing grace God gave that day. Thank you. Would you join me in praying to be that church? Let me pray. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your beautiful, beautiful church. We thank you for the people that you have saved by your grace. We thank you, Father, for uniting us by your spirit. We thank you for giving us each other. We praise you that we live in a city where we can freely meet with other Christians at any time of the day. Lord, we need each other. Help us to cultivate and value people. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be marked by doing good. Open our eyes, Lord. Lord, please show us where we can take every opportunity to do good. Lord, help us just to to love you more each day and depend on you more each day. We thank you for your amazing grace. In Jesus' name.